As a human species expands, the fate of other animal species is often impacted negatively. But you knew that. What you might not know is that wildlife conservation is now leveraging AI, artificial intelligence, and a brilliant researcher at The Ohio State University is leading this movement. Tanya Berger-Wolf is a professor of computer science and engineering, electrical and computer engineering, and evolution, ecology, and organismal biology here at Ohio State. She is also the director of the Translational Data Analytics Institute. Recently, she was awarded an NSF $15 million grant to establish a new Harnessing Data Revolution Institute, founding a new field of study, imageomics. As a computational ecologist, her research is at the unique intersection of computer science, wildlife biology, and social sciences. She creates computational solutions to address questions such as how environmental factors affect the behavior of social animals, humans included. Tanya, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, there was a lot of words that I'm sure our audience has no clue what they mean. First one we're going to go through is, what is a computational ecologist? So my sources tell me that you might have coined this term. Well, as a computer scientist who works with biologists, particularly ecologists, and these are the kinds of biologists that are interested in organisms in the context of their environment. And I work mostly with behavioral ecologists, so they're interested in the behavior of organisms in the context of their environment. And so when I started in 2002, it was the boom of computational biology. This is the height of the Human Genome Project, which, by the way, was just sequenced, finally announced a few months ago. But that was molecular biology. And, but the term computational biology referred to some combination of computer science and biology. And I figured I work with ecologists, so it got to be computational ecology. And that actually makes sense. Okay, so we're going on to another term, wildlife conservation. And I mentioned in the opening that wildlife conservation needs AI and data analytics. So can you walk us through what this means and how do we think about AI and data science, data analytics in this domain? Yeah, we're, in, we're losing biodiversity at an unprecedented scale and rate. We're in the middle of what is termed the sixth extinction. Biodiversity also acts as a monitor and a mitigator for climate change impacts. Yet, we actually do not know what we're losing and how fast. UN said that biodiversity has a data problem. And so while I'm not a field biologist or conservation practitioner who can, will go into the field and implement policies and interventions to protect the biodiversity of the world and the species out there that we're losing, I can do something about filling in that data gap. We need data method solutions at a different scale and a different rate than ever before. And AI has an opportunity to contribute to the change in the solutions needed. Images are by far the most abundant and readily available source of data about pretty much anything from what you had for lunch to what's in your backyard or on a safari ride or a whale watching tour. These images today come from a variety of t sources such as, yes, your cameras when you take a picture in the backyard, or autonomous vehicles underwater on the ground and in the air, the in-situ sensors such as camera traps that are motion-activated camera activated cameras that take pictures of animals. 
and the remote sensing images of habitats, we also have a lot of solutions already in, in place to process all of that data and extract information as in other any animals at all in the images, what species they are, where they are, localize them in the image, what even individuals they are, and what pose they are standing, sitting, running, what they're doing, and what the context of the habitat is. So we, with all of that technology, AI is so well positioned to really bring the solutions into the hands of conservation researchers and practitioners to really understand, not only understand the biodiversity, the abundance of species, the composition, the shifting ranges and habitats, but also to understand what impact do our policies make, if any, to protect the biodiversity. Okay, so you mentioned biodiversity and then the images. So an AI, does that mean that's the definition of imageomics, or is it something else? That's a great question. Uh, AI for conservation from images is the translational aspect of foundational research in machine learning computer vision for biology. That broader field of science of extracting biological information from images, such as biological traits, the phenotype, that's imageomics. Like genomics before, which is extracting biological information from sequences using quantitative approaches, imageomics is extracting biological information from images using quantitative approaches. What better than machine learning and AI? Beautiful. Okay, so we're going to still talk about images and photos. I know I've seen photos of you in the field on safari conducting research. And so I guess my question is, why is it important for you to see your research subjects firsthand? And then second, maybe a funny or it could be a scary story of uh, one of your adventures uh, doing research in the field. I am a city girl. I grew up in cities all my life, and I'm not the kind that to get into the dusty, dirty, grassy, full of insects and uh, unfamiliar animals environment. The biologist that I worked with tried to convince me for a long time that uh, I should really go and see my data. My husband, who is an ecologist, <laughs> took me on field walks and trips and told me beautiful stories of industrial spiders and shy flowers, and I loved him for it, but it was nice to return to, <laughs> to a very nice urban environment. It took biologists three years to convince me to go into the field because my data, I was claiming, looks beautiful in a CSV file on my computer screen. But once I got out there, and it was in Kenya in 2008, and saw the animals in the context of their environment, all the assumptions, the way that the questions were framed, the way that the approach, the biologists were taking the approach to answering them finally made sense. Not only that, it really opened in my mind the possibility of asking new questions and going beyond what the specific ways that biologists were approaching data collection and extracting insight from that data and really thinking of how can we get the data to answer the questions that biologists really want to ask and maybe expand the option of what they can be asking in the first place. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, André Poincaré published a beautiful little book called Science and Method, which establishes what we call today the scientific method. And he finishes it with this quote saying that the scientific method consists in observation and experiment. If the scientist had an infinity of time at his disposal, it would be sufficient to say to him, look and look carefully. But since he has no time to look at everything, and above all to look carefully, 
and something I tell my students all the time, since it is better not to look at all than to look carelessly, he's forced to make a selection. The first question then is to know how to make this selection. And I would say that technology and computer science do not change the scientific method. Fundamentally, it is still about the observation and experiment. What technology and computer science bring to the table is the ability to look at more things more carefully. And so we enable scientists to look at more things by bringing more data, more data sources, more modalities of data. The microscope allowed scientists to zoom in at scales that they couldn't before, and the telescope expanded the, the reach of our eyes and observation ability. And computational approaches, really extracting that information from all of that data, that what allows scientists to look more carefully and hopefully ask new questions. So seeing your data in context is actually important. It really opens up how we think about asking questions. But it also brings in many funny situations, particularly for a city girl <laughs> like me. Uh, for the first time in Kenya, I thought I was very prepared with my phone, my camera, my uh, glasses, <laughs> and a flashlight, which I left on the side table right outside of the mosquito net. So <laughs> when I heard all kinds of sounds during the night from a roaring lion and a laughing hyena to some something running around the, the, the place where I was staying, the room, I could not reach for my flashlight the first time. So the next night, I was very wise. I put everything on the pillow next to me. I was super prepared with a flashlight and, uh, and everything lying beside me. And I already knew that that sound is the, that sounds like a pigeon on steroids, that's a hyena. And I was ready to go to sleep. But before I go to sleep, I decided to read a little bit. As I'm reading on my book, there is a little insect that lands on the page. I'm about to brush it off and it jumped right as I'm about to touch it. And the only insect that I know that jumps like this is a flea. And I'm like, oh my God, no, 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 no. Of all the things that could be happening here in Kenya, in, like, in the bed that I'm sitting, there are fleas. And then I'm noticing there are more of them on, on, on the sheet. And, and, and I lift my head and I see them on the roof of the mosquito net. I feel things crawling across my skin because this is exactly the type of thing that I was afraid of. I'm like, no, this is it. I'm leaving tomorrow for Chicago on the first flight. I'm out of here. And then I, I collect my things. I put on a hoodie. I'm, I'm uh, like wrapped up everywhere in, in, in just my nose sticking out with a flashlight because electricity goes out, sitting on a chair up against the wall away from the bed. And as I'm leaning up close to the wall, I feel a sound and then you smell and then you really know that there are elephants passing up right next to the, the place I'm staying, brushing against the wall less than a foot from me. And somehow that was so comforting that there's this big animal right there that I'm actually not afraid of because I'm protected sitting inside with the bars on the window. They can do absolutely nothing to me and I'm terrified of this little tiny insect in my bed and I started laughing. I still didn't go to sleep. Told everybody that story in the morning. Everybody laughed. I'm like, what do you, why are you laughing? There are fleas in my bed. I want them cleaned now. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Those are grass flies. They hatch every now and then in the grass roof that covers your room and they fall on your bed. They're completely harmless. I'm like, nobody told me? Oh, that's a cute story.
So thinking about uh, you being in the field, and I love the fact that you define the scientific uh, method, observation, and empowerment, and experimentation. So one of the things you mentioned was that you tell your students it's better not to look at all than to look carelessly. So you mentioned students. So I'm going to ask the next question, which is about students. So we all know that engineering research drives innovation, humanitarian solutions, and economic growth. But what I also love about it is the it has this ability to involve students in experiential learning. And you know, you being in Kenya, that's a form of experiential learning. So tell me how students are involved in the, the new institute. Students are the core and the future of the institute. We call our students and postdocs next gens, next generation. They are the ones doing research, driving the agenda in many ways, where the projects will go. We not only include them in the training that and all the programs that we provide, in addition to, of course, setting up the research project, they are also the ones who are setting the agenda for our diversity, equity, uh, justice, and inclusion training. They're the ones who are taking the lead in the community building because big part of the institute is building that scientific community, bringing biologists and computer scientists together, building the common language, common frameworks, common intellectual directions and then expanding that from the core that started to pretty much everybody who is interested. We also do that explicitly through a course called Experiential Introduction to Imageomics, where we bring all our students and then some. Uh, this year, we tried it for the first time. It's a year-long course for students across eight institutions, including in Europe, taught by faculty from five universities. It starts in the fall. We give the students the background both in biology and computer science with some little hands-on projects so they gain literacy in talking to each other and in thinking about sort of interdisciplinary way with the right foundation. And then we take them to Kenya for three weeks where they work together on projects. We tell them the project should be interdisciplinary. Neither one of you should be able to do it on your own. You have to work in teams. You have to work together. This is a very quick iteration, kind of collect data, quick analysis, see if it works, adjust the, the methodology, keep going. And over the course of the spring semester, they finish up the projects. And last week and this week, they are presenting the finished projects. Many of them are becoming PhD dissertation topics and leading to publications already. This is fantastic to see them. We ask computer scientists and biologists, what do you learn? What is the biggest takeaway from the course? The computer scientists inevitably say that they gain respect for data. And biologists say that this opened up how they think about doing research and asking questions, which is exactly what we want. And all of them say that this has changed their life. What better impact can an educator hope for? So you are building up the scientific community, one student at a time. 15, 30, hopefully. <laughs> There are few people who can say this even once in their lifetime, but when we're there in Kenya watching students work on interdisciplinary projects that would not have happened at all if we didn't think of bringing biologists and computer scientists together, pushing the really boundary of science, while a herd of giraffes passing by in the golden light of the Kenyan sunset, I truly think and believe it. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. And that's an amazing feeling. So if you think about uh, the things that you're doing, both in the education space and the research space in the Institute, 
where do you see it five years from now? Um, what impact do you hope to have in that time frame and beyond? We're ambitious. We do hope that we establish a whole new field of science and Imagiomics becomes a household name or at least a name among the scientific households. And we do hope that it will lead to new discoveries, finding new traits, understanding evolution from a different perspectives, because this approach can really help humans see what they could not see, either because we physically could not see this, or because our minds are biased towards what we consider important we may completely miss the traits that are evolutionary important, but did not develop for our senses. We want to enable scientists to see more things and to look at them more carefully so they can ask new questions and find really, truly the insight that gives us that bit of discovery of understanding the world around us. We also want to translate that into actionable AI for biodiversity conservation, where AI can accelerate scale and enable conservation at a rate and scale across time, space, and individuals never before possible. So we can save the species in the process, specifically our species, the humans. I mean, I've learned so much about wildlife conservation and how AI can help that. Uh, Kenya trips with fleas, but not really fleas. Um, I mean, this just sounds like an amazing new field of science. Combining a mind for technology with a heart for nature. And a wonderful example of using data machine learning, and AI for good. Tanya, I'm so happy that you joined us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Ingenuity. Stay up to date on all the amazing innovation and groundbreaking research happening within The Ohio State University College of Engineering by connecting with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at OSU Engineering. <laughs>